Good afternoon and welcome everybody. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm a vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of our economic opportunities program. And I'm thrilled to welcome you today to our conversation uh, with IL Press, uh, uh, author of Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. Uh, this conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program Ongoing Opportunity America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of opportunity across the United States, the implications for individuals, families, and communities, and ideas for change. We're very grateful to Prudential Financial, Walmart.org, the Cerdna Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of our Opportunity in America discussion series. Thanks very much to everybody for joining today. If it's your first time joining us, uh, we do record and um, put all of our events on our website so you can find all of our previous Opportunity in America discussion events, as well as our Working in America discussion events and our Reinventing uh, Low-Wage Work discussion events on our website. It's as.pn slash EOP events. Um, and one of the themes that we've actually uh, returned to time and again over these now more than eight years of having various uh, uh, discussions across these different series is the theme of job quality. And in particular, the quality of jobs that people who are sort of less privileged and less powerful in our society often find themselves in. Um, often these are jobs that are held by uh, women, by workers of color, uh, by immigrants, and and by younger workers. Um, and uh, and and as we've been talking about job quality, we frequently talk about job quality in terms of sort of a lot of the more tangible measures of job quality, such as wages and benefits and working conditions, um, health and safety at work, paid time off and schedules. Um, uh, a lot of those elements of, of job quality. But what I really appreciate about um, Al's book is that it really looks at sort of the, the content of work, kind of the moral terrain of work, um, what happens to working people when they're, um, for some reason, feel compelled to do work in which they feel um, compromised, um, and, and really thinks about how does that um, affect their their well-being, their emotional well-being, their spiritual well-being, and and even their physical well-being. Um, and I think the book adds real depth to sort of the the conversation that the part of job quality we've been having a conversation about that focuses on on worker voice, on the issues of of power and control and agency and the ability to to shape one's one's working conditions and how that really. Um, uh, plays a, a pretty central role in, in determining job quality. Um, and at the same time, I think the book also broaden, broadens the frame um, for thinking about kind of the responsibility for conditions of work away from sort of just uh, a specific worker or a specific employer and, and broadens it more to thinking about how this work is part and parcel of our society and, 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 and what does that mean for where responsibility rests. So it's a fantastic book. Um, I recommend. Uh, I think it offers a lot of food for thought for anybody who's interested in issues of um, equity, job quality, opportunity. Here it is. This is the book. Go get it. Read it. Listen to it. I listen to it. I like it, on, and I like my books in audible form. But um, but I'm I'm really thrilled. So thanks thanks Al for for joining us today. Um, 
and uh, look forward to discussing this. But before we start, of course, we need to go over our logistics just quickly. So everybody, all of our attendees are muted today, but we welcome your questions. Please do ask questions. Um, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, in the Q&A tab, in the Slido box. Um, please put your questions there and, and we'll try to keep track and get to as many as we can. Um, we also encourage, I know a lot of uh, people on, on uh, today's uh, conversation um, also work in this space. And we really encourage you to share you know, work that you're doing that relates to the topic we're talking about. So please share your ideas, resources in the ideas tab that's also in the Slido box. Um, We'd love to hear hear from you about what's going on for you. Um, and then we uh, very much appreciate your feedback. There's a third tab, the polls tab. Um, there's a very quick survey there. Please do fill it out before you go. We'd love to take your feedback and try to always improve our events. Uh, we also encourage you to tweet about our event. The hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have any technical issues during the event, please do email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Um, as I mentioned, the webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website. Um, and uh, finally, closed captions. Um, to be honest, we've been struggling a little bit with our closed captions. We want our events to be as accessible as possible. Um, I hope they work today. They might not. Um, <laughs> there will be closed captions in the recording. Um, so apologies on that. And uh, work continues to, to make that more effective. So. Uh, and now let me briefly introduce I.L. Press. Um, I.L. Press is a writer and journalist who contributes to The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other publications. Uh, since the spring of 2021, he is also a sociologist with a PhD from NYU. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Uh, A.L. is author of two previous books, Absolute Convictions, My Father, A City, and the Conflict That Divided America, and Beautiful Souls, The Courage and Conscience of Ordinary People in Extraordinary Times. So IELTS experienced in exploring this intersection of public debate and personal conviction. I'm really thrilled that you've joined us today. Thank you so much. Um, so there, I'm all done. With all of that, let's just start and hear from you. And maybe just to, to start, you could talk about um, the title of your book. You call it Dirty Work. So maybe you could tell us what you mean by that and, and, and a little bit about what drew you to write about this. Sure. Um, and thank you so much, Maureen. And thank you to the Aspen Institute. And thank you to everyone who is tuning in today. I wish we could all be in a room together and have an in-person conversation that would really energize all of us. But um, this is the next best thing. And I'm thrilled to have this opportunity. Um, so uh, dirty work, uh, I think, is is it's important to explain the title because it's obviously a well-known colloquial expression. And I think when people hear that expression, they usually think of uh, work that is physically dirtying, uh, like maybe hauling garbage um, uh, from the street. Um, and uh, I have a different definition and, and meaning of dirty work in the book. Um, when I use the term, it refers to um, uh, morally troubling uh, activities that society depends on and tacitly condones, but generally doesn't want to hear too much about. Um, so it's both the moral dimension that is different when I talk about dirty work, um, but it's also the societal dimension that this is work that, um, you know, uh, 
plays a very important role in sustaining certain practices, policies, aspects of the American lifestyle, but that we generally don't see or hear too much about. Um, and I didn't formulate that concept on my own. Um, I draw this concept of dirty work from a sociologist named Everett Hughes, which is actually where the narrative of the book begins. And Hughes was, he taught at the University of Chicago, but after World War II, he spent a semester um, teaching in Germany, in post-war Germany. And when he went back to Germany, he had been there in the early 30s. Of course, he was going back to the country where Nazism had taken place. And most of the people he knew, professors and intellectuals and um, artists, were not open supporters of the Nazi party. Um, they were, uh, you know, people he was really curious to talk to, to find out how did you, you know, what happened and, and how did you stay in this place and maintain, um, you know, uh, a sense of, of you know, uh, just, not not feel sullied by all of this. Um, so he goes back and, and he starts asking people about what happened under the Nazis. And what the people he knew tell him is, uh, you know, we're ashamed of, of, of what took place here. Uh, this was a horrible, horrible thing, which is which is exactly what you'd expect the, the, the class of people I'm talking about to say. Um, but then as he as they went on talking, they would say, but you know, the Jews, they really were a problem. Uh, it's not that what the Nazis did was right, but something had to be done to settle this problem. And Hughes keeps hearing this kind of on the one hand, we're ashamed. On the other hand, this was a problem. And, you know, the Jews were taking all the good jobs and they were gathered in these ghettos. And out of this, he formulates this idea of dirty work. And the essay that he wrote is actually called Good People and Dirty Work. And the good people in that title, as you can imagine, are you know, these folks he knew, these well-intentioned cosmopolitan people. The dirty work is, is what the Nazis did. And what he says in the book, in this essay, is, um, you know, we would like to think of these two things as totally separate, uh, but they aren't. The dirty work wasn't done by rogue actors. It was done by agents of society who were taking care of a problem that was just sort of hidden from view. And it's not that the good people would have approved of, of, of the details of what was happening, but at some level, they just sort of washed their hands of it. And to me, the most interesting thing about the essay is that it is not addressed to Germans. It is not, not actually, and, and Hughes was very explicit about this. He said in, in correspondence later, um, I wrote this, this essay as a warning to my fellow North Americans, um, to, to, to make us aware of the dangers in our own midst, to make us aware that this dynamic between sort of good people and dirty work, between you know, the, the people who wanna think of themselves as good people, but, but actually tolerate these things, this exists in every society. And it exists obviously in much more subtle and gray forms in a place like the United States. But he talked about racial violence. Uh, he talked about um, private lynchings. This was in the 50s uh, that he was in early 60s. He talked about just, just um, he actually talked about prisons, um, all kinds of things that maybe we push to the side and don't wanna hear too much about. And I was really fascinated by this concept because the two main things I've written about throughout my career are, on the one hand, issues of social justice, 
writ large, inequality, human rights, um, racism, and, and, and inequities in our society. On the other, the second one is, as you mentioned in your introduction, issues of personal conscience. Uh, what happens to an individual when what they're asked to do goes against what their conscience is telling them, the private voice. Um, and this book is a fusion of those two things because I'm looking at work, as you, as you said, um, work that, that in America qualifies as, as dirty work. It is prevalent, it is in our society for a reason, but we don't hear or see too much about it. And inequality plays a very important role in why we don't hear too much, which I can say more about. Yeah, good. I, I'm going to going to ask you to, to say more about um and I because I think um uh also maybe you could say a little bit more about um this idea of moral injury, because I think that's an important point for people to understand as they as they think about the the stories you recount in the book. Um absolutely talk about that a little bit. Sure, too. sure. So so moral injury is is a really central idea in this book and and it it has really come quite prominent in conversations in and among veterans of America's recent wars, um, some of whom felt that the term PTSD, the concept of PTSD, particularly the idea of suffering a brain injury and, and sort of this fear response to a near-death experience, that it didn't really match what they were feeling and that what they were really feeling when they came back from Afghanistan or in Iraq was a sense of inner conflict about moral questions, things they had seen, things they had witnessed, things they might have participated in uh, unwittingly that ended up really going against their core beliefs and values. Um, and so this conversation, this term takes on a currency in the military. And I draw on that term, not only in the section of the book about people in the drone program, which is of course directly about um, issues of war and, and involvement in acts that might cause some inner conflict to the conscience, but much more broadly. Um, there's a section of the book on people who, who work in prisons. And of course, we have the largest prison system in the world. And I make a strong case that um, that, that work, the work of, of being a guard, but also the work of being a mental health aide, that you are exposed to moral hazards in that job um, that, that make this term moral injury relevant. Um, I, I also think it's relevant to some of the other forms of work I look at, including uh, work in slaughterhouses. Um, so I think that we've, we've had a conversation about this term within kind of the context of war. But I would love if, if it sort of migrated out and we started talking about, and in fact, during the pandemic, we did start seeing the term come up for uh, frontline medical workers who were having to make wrenching moral decisions that afterwards haunted them and that weighed on them. And that's really what moral injury is. Yeah. And I think, you know, and also, so, and now I'm going to maybe get a little bit to the inequality piece. And I think, you know, one of the themes that's sort of going to be familiar to this audience is, is that for many of the individuals whose stories you tell in the book, um, you know, there's, I mean, there's this question of choice, right? Um, and, and, you know, they took jobs, um, so they choose to take these jobs, right? But 
I think there's um, a lot of times, you know, it's sort of like how, how much of a choice did they have? Often these were maybe the best jobs in terms of that were available to them best kind of in an economic sense. They were the best paid, the ones that were going to, you know, they were the only ones that were going to help them keep a roof over their head or something. Um, you know, but I think that there's also, so, you know, so there's a sense of inequality in that in terms of who really has choice and who doesn't. Um, but I think there's also this, um, I, I'm just curious sort of how you think about this issue of choice and equality, who's actually making a choice, because I think there's also a sense that, you know, and, and maybe you could also talk about Harriet's story a little bit in, in sort of sure. grounding this, because I think hers is an interesting one where she thinks maybe she'll be able to do some good. And she doesn't really have a full picture. Like, like, is she really choosing? Does she have a full picture of what that job is when she chooses to to take it and sort of you know, right. different choice points along the way. So maybe maybe you could sort of reflect on that a little bit. Absolutely. So I should say, I don't think we can really understand dirty work without thinking about issues of class, without thinking about issues of race, without thinking about the immigration system um, and the role that immigrants play in, in doing certain jobs in America. All of those questions, those issues are explored in these stories. And if we, if we start with Harriet's, um, Harriet Kraskowski is the first sort of main story in the book. And she is someone who um, is living in Florida at the time. Her husband is unemployed. It's post-recession after the 2008 financial crash, uh, which hit Florida very hard. She needs a job. They've got two kids. Her, her husband doesn't is out of work. She ends up taking a job at this prison, uh, the Dade Correctional Institution. And she works there as a mental health aide. Um, she's not earning a lot. She's getting $12 an hour. Uh, she, as you say, thinks maybe I'll do some good here um, because uh, she is interested in helping um, survivors of trauma and people who are in difficult situations and, and certainly the incarcerated people at, at Dade in the mental health ward um, qualify as such. Well, what she quickly discovers as she starts working there, um, first of all, she, she starts hearing of abuse from from the men in the ward uh, who are some of whom tell her that their meals are not being given to them um, she also witnesses verbal and physical abuse um, and she's not sure what to do because she herself depends on the guards as mental health aides in prisons all do in fact um, for her own safety, for her own protection, right? They buzz her through the security doors that she goes through. They stand and, and sit in the sessions that she does with groups of, of guys. Um, she, they're in the rec yard with her. Well, when she challenges, there's one point where she um, isn't allowed into the rec yard on a couple of Sundays in a row. And um, the rec yard is the place where the inmates are getting fresh air and exercise. It's upsetting. Um, so she, she sort of raises this in an email with a supervisor and lo and behold, what follows is retaliation the, the guards start disappearing when she's in the rec yard, leaving her there alone. Um, they start leaving her alone in her group sessions. And so she sent this message, don't challenge us, don't go against us. And that's all background to the real drama of the, of that I talk about in, in, the, in the book, because unfortunately the abuses she learns about get much more serious. Um, and she learns that some of the mentally ill inmates, the, the, the prisoners at Dade uh, are being locked in a scalding shower uh, 
uh, as punishment. And one of the one prisoner in particular, Darren Rainey, dies in that shower. And I won't go into all the details of the death, but suffice to say, Harriet is horrified by this. She does not, uh, she can't believe it at first. Uh, but when she realizes from the nurses that, that it really did happen, um, she feels on the one hand, this impulse to report it. On the other hand, she's afraid. She doesn't want to lose her job. Uh, and so she doesn't say anything. And in fact, none of the mental health staff at the prison say anything. And the reason I tell this story is, again, to get into these issues of choice and how much choice do you really have on this on this job to be a moral agent, to do to follow what you think medical ethics, uh, because they're, it's very clear, you know, mental health aides in prisons are told you need to report uh, violations of medical ethics. But how do you do that in a context where you're afraid? And by the way, jails and prisons are the largest mental health institutions in our society. So far from an isolated case, this is actually an instance where a form of dirty work is really troubling and causing us as a society to, um, to put a lot of people in these situations. Yeah, so, you know, I'm really, so I have so many follow-up questions to this. Um, but one is, I think, um, I'm, I'm interested in, so this is one of several stories and you cover several different industries. And, and so I'm just curious sort of how, I, I guess I'm curious sort of, like, how did you choose these stories? How did you think about which stories are really going to help me sort of understand and then communicate kind of what I'm, what I'm learning about the nature of this work across the United States. Um, I'm just wondering, like, did you have specific industries and you were looking for people? Like, how did you, how did you think about that? So I thought about it in terms of, um, you know, it's, it's fundamental to my definition of dirty work that um, it is, uh, as I said, work that society depends on and, and tacitly condones, but doesn't want to hear too much about. And I thought of it in terms of two different kinds of uh, work. On the one hand, there is, we've talked about prisons, and, and I mentioned that there's a section of the book on the drone program. These are, these are government functions. These are things that the state does. And so to some extent, it's not too hard to make the case that these things are done with some level of a public mandate. Now, it may be that you know, a lot of people, uh, again, to go back to the, the good people, you know, have told the details of certainly what happened to Harriet, they, they'd say, no, that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing that. Uh, but the fact is, we don't hear those details. We don't hear those stories so often. So on one level, I wanted to look at public jobs, public functions that, that, that really do uh, sort of stray into this territory of dirty work. On the other hand, I wanted to look at jobs that have no government role. They're in the private sector. But what is the relationship to the rest of us? Well, we are the consumers, the society. So if, if we think about um, the kill floors of industrial slaughterhouses, um, why are the conditions which I write about there? You know, and, and what, what I mean by that is, why have the line speeds gotten faster and faster? Why have the injury rates gotten more and more uh, severe uh, in terms of repetitive strain and, and bodily, but also to, to the dignity of, of the workers on the lines? Um, and why is the workforce increasingly drawn uh, on um, uh, undocumented immigrants, refugees, uh, in a lot of places that I write about? These were jobs that native-born Americans had done, but no longer did. 
In some cases, they were jobs that, uh, frankly, the, the more affluent white people in the community did not do, and African-American uh, residents with fewer uh, choices and opportunities did do in, in larger numbers. Um, so why, why is that? Um, well, you know, it's because we love our meat, plentiful, cheap, you know, fast food, abundant, and it's also produced under these socially invisible conditions. It's very rarely on the nightly news. You don't, you don't see cameras going into the slaughterhouses. You barely hear from the workers, even though they've been dubbed essential workers uh, recently. So I thought that um, looking at types of work that are connected to our choices as consumers is equally important. Yeah, and I'm just wondering, you know, I don't know when you started working on the book and sort of, you know, um, what the timeline is. So maybe you could tell us, because I, I, I have sort of two questions related to the essential workers thing. One is, I'm just curious in terms of sort of, you know, pandemic conditions, how that influenced your your interviewing abilities and 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 how you were able to understand these different workplaces or access them and 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 what um, what barriers you faced there and then and then just also this this conversation around essential workers and sort of how you feel like this intersects with this conversation how this is maybe a little bit different than this conversation so I'm just yeah. curious your reflections on on those two things sure uh, well I should say um, I conducted my interviews almost entirely before the pandemic. I did do some, some interviews in just afterwards um, as I was sort of hitting the stretch run of the writing and of course reframing some things in light of the pandemic. But um, fortunately it, it was pre-pandemic, the reporting. So I met in person with all of these workers. Now, what's so interesting to me, and I'm, again, I'm gonna talk about the immigrants I interview in this poultry slaughterhouse in Texas. Uh, these were, uh, mostly women uh, from Mexico or immigrants from Mexico who um, in some cases had papers and in some cases did not. Um, and what's striking to me is how afraid they were to um, identify themselves and to come forward. Uh, in fact, I spent time at another slaughterhouse before the one in Texas where I thought I had a story and I thought I would ground the book. Um, but no workers there would talk to me, even though I had a lot of contacts. They wouldn't even talk to me anonymously. And the reason they wouldn't talk to me is because um, these ice raids at meatpacking plants had been happening uh, under the Trump administration. And it sent a chill through the industry. Um, and of course, these are very vulnerable populations of workers. They can not only lose their jobs, but potentially be deported. And it's fascinating to me that that's, the, that's what I saw. And I spent all this time reporting on that. And then after March of 2020, I saw that they were being called essential workers. The same people, same exact people, suddenly essential workers. And in fact, um, you know, uh, Trump invokes the National uh, Defense Production Act to ensure that the lines aren't slowed down. And to me, that was just a real crystallization of, in a way, the, the hypocrisy we have around this, this concept of essential work. Um, sure, it's essential, um, you know, when, when we uh, have the cameras there and there's a, a, 
you know, an opportunity to curry favor with um, workers and the, the, at the Republican National Convention, there were a bunch of essential workers brought in, none from slaughterhouses, by the way. Um, but but so it's a good photo op, and it's a nice phrase for politicians to use. But do we really treat them as essential, um, or do we treat them as expendable? Um, and certainly in the case of of these workers in the slaughterhouses and meatpacking, I think it was the latter. Uh, you know, they were they were asked to go back to work. Um, ordered, actually, um, even though no social distancing uh, measures had been taken or very cursory ones. Um, there were a lot of deaths. There were tens of thousands who fell ill. Um, and I write about all this to kind of make us think about whether we, when we say essential workers, do we really mean it? Um, do we think that uh, this is essential and therefore should be you know, we should care about the dignity and welfare of, of the people involved, or or is it just a phrase? Yeah, yeah, great. I see we do have a couple questions from the audience, and I love to encourage our audience to ask questions. So I'll go ahead and, and share their questions. So the first question is, um, the book seems to have similar themes to Hannah Arendt's, Hannah Arendt Eichmann's In Jerusalem. Um, were you influenced by Arendt at all? And if yes, how do you think you uh, grow upon or build upon her work? It's a great question. Um, that book is so important to me. Um, actually, I don't know if this person read the review of Dirty Work in the New York Times, but one of the things the reviewer picked up on was precisely that. Um, and um, so, you know, I am the grandson of Holocaust survivors, um, and I've thought a lot about the banality of evil, which is the, the famous. For those who don't know that book, it's a book uh, that that in which that phrase, the banality of evil was coined. And it's basically about the idea that, um, that evil is often done not with evil intent, but through a kind of, I'm just following orders, a kind of robotic, you know, the, 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 the machinery is just kind of turning and people get caught up in these systems. Um, and, you know, I think that that's such a powerful and important concept. Um, and, Again, we have to think about less extreme examples. She was obviously talking about, you know, the worst example, Nazi Germany, a genocide. Um, but I do think about that, and, and I think about it in, in dirty work in terms of, you know, the people I write about, Harriet, for example, who I was just talking about, um, they're caught up in a larger system. Uh, and the system is what we have to think about. Uh, the individual matters. The individual choices certainly are important. Um, they can make a difference, but if we really want to address why this evil is happening, and it is evil at this particular prison, um, we have to think systemically because conditions were there, unfortunately, to allow that to happen. And then to put, um, people on the front lines in these almost where they only have bad choices, you know, should I quit or should I stay? Should I report this and risk being retaliated against? And that's just not a good situation. So very influenced by that book. Yeah, great. Um, so we have another good question, I think, and it relates, I think, to kind of how you opened um, is, you know, do you think dirty work is a part of all cultures or do you think there are certain conditions and cultures that allow it or, you know, sort of how should people think about the, the, the role of different cultures in allowing it to grow? Yeah, I mean, I, I talk a little bit about that um, in the book. Uh, it's you know, I think it is a part of all societies. I don't think we'd, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a society where 
what I describe as dirty work isn't happening in some form. Um, but I think that the really important message, one of the really important messages of the book is that it's not fixed in stone, right? It, it comes, it, it really is dependent on what citizens are, are willing to have done in their name, on how aware or not aware we are of what's being done in our name and how much um, we mobilize around these things. Um, and so, you know, the, the um, in, in a society like India, uh, in the past at least, there were forms of work, there were castes, literally, that, um, that were assigned, you know, jobs that were considered um, disreputable. And those people in turn were, were considered, uh, they were actually called untouchables. Um, we don't have that here. Uh, but I do think that one of the really important aspects of dirty work in America is that it is not randomly distributed. That it, it, it takes place, if we think of slaughterhouses or prisons, they are located in poorer parts of the country. So you have a form of regional inequality that shapes where this work takes place. Um, and in turn, the work itself falls more to, you know, high school graduates as opposed to people with advanced degrees, um, women, people of color, uh, people with fewer choices and opportunities. Uh, and I think that that enables us as a society, certainly enables the elites of society, uh, to think less about it and in a sense to, to wash their hands of it and leave other people to do the dirty work. Yeah, yeah, great. This is wonderful. The audience is now doing my work for me. Um, so, uh, so I, and I think this is a good question and I think, you know, what do you consider societies, like just to build on this a little bit, what do you consider society's obligation to people who conduct dirty work, but also, you know, and, and you did, I think, sort of interact a little bit with unions in some in the book. And I think there, it's a good question, sort of thinking about what are the different sort of organizations, um, unions, worker centers, or others that can sort of help workers build a little bit more agency and have build uh, the ability to influence their working conditions. I, I, you know, I'm just wondering if you have some reflections on, on that question. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. Um, and, and in the, in the, in the first example I talked about, um, you know, uh, I interview a guy named Kenneth Applebaum, who was the head of the uh, mental health prison system in Massachusetts. And um, he said to me, you know, uh, if elite psychiatrists were sent into places like the Dade Correctional Institution and put in positions as Harriet was, this would be a topic you'd see discussed at the annual meetings. Uh, it would be center stage. And instead, as he told me, it's barely noticed. You barely get any discussion of this. And that's because it's not the elite psychiatrists who do it. It's, it's the people on the lower rungs. It's the, it's the folks like Harriet. And um, so organizations that, um, where, where this is happening absolutely have a role to play and, and a responsibility. Uh, unions as well. Um, now, the fact of the matter is we're, we're, we're in a place in our, in our society, I think, where on the one hand, there's this new union activity and a lot of, a lot of organizing that's going on, which is Happy strike really weather. striking. Absolutely. Um, on the other hand, um, historically, the percentage of the labor force that is that belongs to unions is extremely low. And beyond that, we have to ask about, is it a strong union or is it 
a union that is just kind of hanging on. And in the poultry plant that I wrote about, there actually is a union, uh, but none of the workers I interviewed belonged to it because they didn't feel it actually advocated for them. Um, and that isn't entirely the fault of the union. It's a historical trend. It, it, it relates, as I map out in the book, to the weakening of meatpacking unions as the industry uh, really made a concerted effort to start uh, using, uh, you know, basically giving lower wages and, and, and more exploitative conditions. Um, so it's really complicated, but, but those organizations are hugely important to all of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I think, I mean, I think um, that issue of sort of there's a union, but they don't belong to it. I, I think also, you know, I think it speaks to sort of the systemic nature, right? So why are these institutions weak and sort of like how these things all kind of get interrelated? Um, okay, so we have a number of other other um, questions here. I think there's one that that's talking about um, bystanders and sort of um, this idea of um, sort of um, bystanders who don't act and sort of this conflict between sort of survival instincts. And I think this is kind of what we started with versus, you know, you know, versus our values, right? So, um, and for, for, you know, and, and, um, uh, and I think, and I think it relates a little bit to the next question that there's, you know, sort of also um, the double conflict of people of color having to do dirty work that negatively impacts other people of color. Um, and so you have, not just your individual survival instincts, but you have kind of your group survival instincts versus your exigencies to sort of turn on your group. Anyway, I'm just curious yep. if you reflect on those those issues. Let, let me reflect a little on the second question, the 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 um, the issue of people of color having to do dirty work that disproportionately impacts other people of color negatively. Um, I talk about that very openly in the um, section of the book on prison guards. Um, because here is here is a an occupation where um, you know back in the 1950s it was all white in places like Florida and and Georgia and elsewhere and um, you know today uh, much more diversity very very um, large growth of the that the, the percentage of the workforce that is now black or Latino. Uh, but note when that happened, it happened during the age of mass incarceration. Um, so what, what a terrible irony that is. Uh, the communities that are suffering most from mass incarceration are given the opportunity to essentially lock up their own. Um, and uh, I interview a black prison guard in Florida who, who talked about this and, um, and also talked frankly about the fact that, you know, we talked about the, the moral injuries of, of potentially seeing, you know, incarcerated people being mistreated and abused. Um, well, what he was hearing from some of the, the, the guys in the prison is, you know, um, you're an Uncle Tom, you're a traitor, you know, you're, you're, you're um, how could you be abandoning your community in, in, in working in a profession like this? Um, and, you know, I think as a society, that is a real indictment of, of, of us as a society, that, that instead of um, creating better job opportunities and um, addressing whether mass incarceration is actually a just policy, 
we um, we've ended up in a sense outsourcing it and and um, delegating it to the very communities that, that are being impacted disproportionately. Um, if you want, I can say a little about the, the human instinct personal risk thing, which is just that, um, you know, I really think that, I hope one reason people can relate to the stories in the book is that I don't think any of us have had jobs, I can certainly say for myself, um, where you don't come to these moments where you have a choice. Should I do the convenient thing or should I do what I think is right here? Uh, if I do what I think is right, it might really cost me something. Um, if I do the convenient thing, how am I going to sleep? You know, how am I going to live with myself? I think that happens to everybody, no matter how, what kind of job you have. Um, but um, I think that in the stories I'm telling about in the it, describing in the book, if we think about that very universal dilemma, and then you add to it the pressure of um, it's a low wage job, but you really need it. And you're under pressure to keep it because you don't have better choices um, and you have to support your family or yourself. Or you're going to lose everything you have. That really heightens and, and twists the playing field um, in ways that um, I think should make us all think twice before we just judge the people who are doing this work. We have to think about the social conditions, the social uh, structure within which it's occurring. Yeah, great. I and I love this next question because it gets into sort of, so what do we do? Um, the question is, uh, I appreciate the detail with which you described actual labor, working conditions and indignities involved in dirty work. In addition to book like yours, what more can we do to make dirty work more visible and better and, and better understood, especially to people who aren't looking. And I think this, you know, starts to move us towards so, so, you know, what do we do to, I would, I would add a little bit to what do we do to make it more visible and what do we do to make it less dirty? Yeah, I think those are two separate things and they're <laughs> both really, they're both really important. Um, and, and by the way, I've been asked, and I think it's right that I think that, you know, we might have a conversation where we start saying, okay, what of this work is so dirty, so troubling that we don't want it to exist at all? Um, and I think that's true of some of the, the things I write about. I, I, think, I think as a society, we want to ask, do we really want jails and prisons to be our largest mental health institutions? Or is there something inherently wrong with that? And if there's something inherently wrong with it, we have to address that. Um, there are other things, um, maybe the, the meat and poultry industry is a good example. You know, I don't think as a society, we're at a place where people are going to say, let's just stop it. Let's, let's, let's all become vegetarians tomorrow. Maybe in, in 10 years, maybe when, um, meat substitutes are, are, are different right now, that's probably not realistic, but there it's, it's about the conditions. It's about, you know, okay, if we have this, why is it happening in the way it is. And, and, and when I, again, just to talk about that poultry slaughterhouse, you had women working on the lines there who weren't allowed bathroom breaks. Um, and this was not an isolated uh, meatpacking plant. This is a problem in the industry. Mm -hmm. They were being yelled at and you know the lines are moving so quickly and it's such a focus that they literally, women cried telling me they would go to work with an extra pair of pants. Um, and that's just 
wrong. Uh, and, and, and I don't think that, that, that people who eat meat would, would say it's okay. Uh, but again, the problem is the, social, the socially invisible conditions, the fact that we don't talk about it. Um, I think that uh, the, in terms of what we can do about it, the, it starts with awareness. Um, I think everything starts with awareness. And that's probably why I became a journalist and, and, uh, and a writer. I think that there's power in stories and stories um, are every bit as powerful as, as policies because they dramatize what it means um, for, for a person's life to be caught in, in this situation. So I think it starts with awareness. Um, but I think at, after that, it also, we have to think collectively um, because as I say in the book at various points, it's, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say easy, but one way you can think about dirty work is, okay, there's a lot of dirty work in the meat industry. Therefore, I'm only gonna buy the meat that's labeled a certain way so that it, I'm not participating, I'm not complicit in it. You know, humanely raised, uh, no antibiotics, whatever other labels uh, you, you want to, to make yourself feel you're, you're not really abetting that. Uh, but that's a, that's a great impulse and it's, it's very powerful if, if it starts to spread. But on an individual basis, it's not gonna do much. It only it only will change much if it becomes collective. If right, if a lot of people are doing this, and let's say those people start to say, "Well, you know, I see that these labels say humanely raised chickens. What about humanely treated workers, uh, which you never see on the labels?" Right. So um, I think that that thinking structurally and collectively is really the key. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I've, um, so one, there was, um, and I'm forgetting the legislative, there was actually a legislative effort in California to start trying to label products with sort of the kinds of working conditions um, people that were employed were. So it, it, had, it didn't go forward this time, but maybe it comes back and, and goes forward. I thought it was a really interesting and innovative idea. So that was, that was out there. Yeah, yeah, cool. So hopefully hopefully we start to, to actually do something about that. Um, uh, so that was just a little little side note there. Um, so let me see. I think there's two questions here. One is about uh, senior assisted living facilities, and one is about childcare and daycare work. As you know, do we see this as dirty work, even though it's vitally important, um, and is disproportionately black and brown women who who perform this work for poverty wages? Um, I'm wondering how you see these this kind of work relate to sort of the dirty work and how you maybe see it also as, as different. Yeah, um, great question. Uh, so I should say that my book is not a comprehensive account. Um, there are forms of what I would call dirty work that I don't, I don't write about much, right? I just touch on it. Um, but uh, in terms of the, the assisted living, um, situation. You know, um, I'd have to think about it more, but, but the, the core thing about dirty work, when, I, when I, I, there's one point in the book where I list four conditions. And the first one is that this work causes substantial social harm, um, either to other people or to non-human animals and the environment. Um, and, you know, one can make the case that that, that kind of work is, is at least in theory, the opposite, right? It's it's supposed to not be causing harm. It's supposed to be causing 
uh, to alleviate suffering and to help people. Uh, now, of course, you could say the same thing about the mental health aid in the, in the prison. But I would say that the conditions there are such that um, it's inherently troubling. Um, is it inherently troubling in this country, the assisted living conditions? You know, certainly the, the work conditions I've read about suggest that, um, you know, it's, it's veering towards that, um, that, that instead of this being uh, a really rewarding and noble form of work, it's a, uh, a job of last resort. It's a, it's a job that is, uh, you know, kind of forgotten about and, and, and devalued in, in some fundamental way. And that's a second part of my definition, which is that it not only causes harm to others or to the environment, it causes harm to the people who do it, um, to their dignity, to their sense of self-worth, uh, to their, their ethical uh, beliefs. So I'd have to think about it a little more. It's a really good question. Yeah. Um, I think this there's um, a question about um, uh, whether you see people with disabilities. Um, I don't, did you run into people with disabilities, you know, if they are more likely to be forced to, to take dirty jobs, um, or, you know, if you see them being targeted in some way as well. Um, hmm. Not something I, I addressed in the book, but it's a really interesting question. Yeah, no, it is an interesting question. I do think that there's a lot of interesting questions about people with disabilities and the way they're, they're able to participate um, in work or the kinds of work they're able to participate in. So I, yeah. I appreciate that, that question. That is um, worth, worth thinking about. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm um, uh, let's see. So, oh, there are a couple other questions here. Um, uh, one about, um, uh, okay, lots of questions here. And I see we're coming up on time. So I'll just like ask them all. I, let me um, say one thing about the disability thing, just that, that struck me as I thought about that. Um, you know, some of this work actually causes disabilities. I'm thinking in particular of the, um, the slaughterhouse and this repetitive work. Um, the women were breaking down, you know, shoulder injury, a wrist injury, a, a um, just, just um, a physical injury that the prop, the, 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 it wasn't labeled a disability, but what happens is after a certain amount of time, they start to wonder, would anyone else ever hire me? Right? Because I can't do the heavy lifting. I can't do uh, these other things. And they felt trapped uh, in, in these roles. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, it was really tragic just, just to think about that. In some of these plants, by the way, there's, there's a 100% turnover every year. That's the level of injury we're talking about. Um, so anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I listened to you talk about this and line speeds and, um, you know, and sort of the injuries in these plants. And, and I'm thinking about this question here, sort of what policy recommendations do you have for addressing systemic issues that create environments of dirty work unions are important, but they're in decline in the U.S. So what are other policies do you think could be effective? Um, and I'm thinking about that um, in terms of and I don't know how much you visited these plants like. Um, but perhaps more than inspectors do. Um, well, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> I should say something there about OSHA, um, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, uh, because they do and can inspect workplaces for, um, for degrading conditions, injurious conditions, uh, conditions that are threatening. But unfortunately, the budget of OSHA is tiny 
um, relatively speaking, when you think about the number of work, workplaces there are in this country. Um, and what I learned is that um, very often the company gets a head up, a heads up. So um, it's like, oh, the line speeds are terrible. Women aren't being allowed bathroom breaks. Oh, OSHA's coming in two weeks. Slow everything down, make it look fine. You get the, and, and this is actually an issue in how I recorded this book. I felt very much that if I went into these places through the front door, uh, as journalists think of it, um, you, get a, you get a picture, uh, you get a story, but it's a filtered story. It's, um, it's not the story, you know, it's cleaned up and, um, and sanitized. And that's not the story I wanted. Um, so I felt I had to get it some other way. Um, and as people who, who read the book will see, these are very uh, difficult uh, industries to, they're, they're not very transparent. Um, and uh, so this is a real problem. As a society, we should be talking about this. How does concealment of certain forms of labor uh, almost ensure that there will be uh, exploitation and mistreatment and, you know, things that, that pass unnoticed that go on. Yeah. And I want to um, actually turn that uh, question back to the audience a little bit and say, like, if you have ideas on policy recommendations, please share them in our ideas tab. I know some of you have a lot more policy expertise and, and would love to, to hear your ideas on sort of policy approaches to addressing this. Um, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that that front door, other mm -hmm. door question because um, a lot of a lot of people in our in our audience um, do work where they work directly with workers and and they're trying to sort of understand what the real story is. So I'm just wondering. Um, I, I guess I have two things. One, do you have any just thoughts about sort of how to have those conversations so you have a better picture of what might be having in a workplace in our societies, like you're right, it's it's easier for people to talk to, an, to the company representative and they'll say, well, this is what we need and what happens in the workplace and that may not be the full story. So, so if you have any recommendations for people who are trying to figure that out. And then I'm also just wondering for you, I think, you know, when you listen to workers and hear their stories and they're difficult, um, how and and maybe you feel some responsibility like like how do you how do you manage that dynamic so. yeah um i mean you know i think that um the my job is to listen um and you know i think it's one of the most crucial skills any any journalist or nonfiction writer has uh, you, you have to listen really well um and and you know there was a quote that 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 President Biden uh, uh, President Biden's that I wanted to mention in this conversation. He said it at the Democratic National Convention when he accepted the nomination. He told a story of his father telling him, you know, a job isn't just about a paycheck. Um, it's about dignity. It's about a person's place in the community. It's about all these other things. And I think that I went into this book wanting to hear about those other things. Um, not just wanting to hear about the thing that sometimes the conversation about labor and work is so focused on how much does the person earn and do you have these benefits and not. And those are hugely important questions and they're not unrelated to dignity and place and community, but there's a separate set of questions. How are you treated? How much uh, moral agency do you have in your job? Uh, how 
often do you feel you're asked to do things that go against what you think is proper or right? Um, and, you know, how does this job make you feel when you're not at work? Do you talk about it to other people? A lot of the prison guards I spoke to said, no, they don't. Um, and that is part of the conversation about work that I think we have to be having. Um, and those are hard conversations. And I think they, they do require a level of comfort because, because people are exposing, you know, hard feelings that they have. Um, but if we don't talk about it, then it's just, it's, um, you know, I, I, there's a phrase in the book, I borrowed it from a famous book, the hidden injuries of class. Uh, if we don't talk about these things, then those hidden injuries are really missing from our conversation and, and, it, and they really shouldn't be. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I am done asking you questions. I don't know if you have any final comment that you'd like uh, to share before we close. Mm. Um, we only have a couple minutes. Well, um, I guess I just want to say thank you again uh, to everyone. And, um, you know, I feel like uh, really like everyone else, this is a hard time. It's a struggle for everyone uh, during the pandemic. And I so wish that we'd never had to go through this. But I do, I, as I was finishing my book, the pandemic happened and we started having this conversation about essential workers. And we started having this conversation about who gets to sit at home behind their screen and shelter in place and who's out there doing work that is dangerous, putting their own lives and their own health and their own families at risk. Um, and, you know, as, as terrible a time as this has been, that's a really, really important conversation and bad on us that we never had it before. Why did it take the pandemic to force this conversation? Um, but I think it's a really positive thing that we've had it. And we're now starting to have conversations about, do we really want to go back? Do we really want the status quo that existed before the pandemic? Or do we want something better? Um, and I think that as a society, that this is a moment of opportunity because we can say, you know, actually, no, we, we don't want what we had. I think we're seeing a lot of workers who are not rushing back to work uh, right now or quitting jobs. And that's part of the same phenomenon, right? We, we don't actually just want what we had. What we had was making us miserable in some way um, or was difficult. So I think that this is a really exciting moment in, in that sense of people, you know, it's not often in history and as a society where we kind of are thinking, what kind of world do we want to live in? Um, and hopefully it will lead us to a good place rather than a darker place. Terrific, thank you. Thank you so much, I.L. Press, for joining us today. Thank you for your book. Again, a great book. Everybody should get it, read it. Really well thank done, you. thank you. Appreciate your work. Um, thank you everybody to join, for joining us today. Thank you to my fabulous Aspen Institute colleagues who um, it's a team effort and they do a lot of work to help organize these events. So many thanks to Adrian Lee, Tony Mastria, Victoria Prince. Um, thanks uh, so much to our audience and I hope you come back. Um, please do again, take a moment to let us know what you think in the, um, in the polls tab in the Slido box on your screen before you go. Uh, you can also send us an email at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We really appreciate your feedback and we hope you'll join us again. Thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks again.